Hey, really good friends. This episode contains content that may be alarming to some listeners. Please check the show notes for more detailed descriptions and take care of yourself. Hello, and welcome to Historically Really Good Friends, a queer history podcast. I'm Rachel Craig. And I'm Jared Femblow. And hey. Hey, hi. How are you? It has been in the high 80s, like almost 90 degrees in LA this entire past week. There was a fire near my mom's house. (gasps) We're, yeah, we're really experiencing some, some heat and some drought right now. That's absolutely wild. In New Jersey, it's supposed to snow this weekend. Mm. I, I am probably going skiing. Fires (laughs) are not so much of an issue, Um, but that's, that's still really scary. Also, I feel like you've been in a drought for quite some time. Yeah, California has been in a drought for we always are going on years, maybe. I know. I thought there was um, like a few years back. I I thought there was something saying that we were like almost out of it, or we were like close to being out of it. But it feels like we never quite truly get out of out of the drought. Yeah, they're just saying it to make you feel like there's hope, but there's probably mm-hmm. not. Also, it was Groundhog's <laughs> Day a few weeks ago, and I don't know what Punxsutawney <clears throat> Phil told us. I really wasn't up to date on Groundhog's Day this year. Oh, I. But Maybe we're getting, you were, so are we getting an early spring? Is that what the 90 no, so, degrees is all about? Or just climate change? Puxatani, Phil, or whatever. Punxatani? Punxatani? Punk. I don't know. Phil? We can call okay. Phil. Phil. Phil said that we are getting six more weeks of winter, but oh, there's a groundhog called Miss G or Mrs. G <laughs> or something like that. And she maybe lives in, in Massachusetts. And I saw an article online recently that was like, I don't care what Punxsutawney Phil says. Miss G <laughs> says that we're getting an early spring. Yeah, I'm on Miss G's side here. Me too. I've never heard of her before. I don't know if she's spreading misinformation. <laughs> she might but, be, honestly. But I do, I do trust I just looked it up and she has been forecasting on Groundhog Day since 2008. That's what I like to see. Women rising up, getting into the business, breaking that glass ceiling. Truly, she is a Groundhog Girl boss. Mm -hmm. And let's give her some more exposure, please. Absolutely. Promote Miss G, Honestly, down with the men. Yeah, please. I think we really need to. Um, Also, that was a tangent. I don't even know how it got (laughs) up, truly. But... One thing I did notice, so when the podcast came out, it was honestly the first time I had listened to the first episode all the way through because I was really nervous about it and just didn't want to hear the sound of my own voice. But I listened to it when it came out because Jared edits everything. So thanks, Jared, everyone. Round of applause for Jared. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And I just did it. I had a massive wake-up call about my usage of the word um – and mm. so mm-hmm. um, I just did it, especially mm-hmm. considering that I give presentations for my job. I really had a deep self-reflective <laughs> moment and it brought me to the conclusion that if you were an avid watcher of the Disney Channel like I was, there was mm-hmm. an episode of either The Sweet Life of Zack and Cody or The Sweet Life on Deck. And please okay. let me know if, if you remember this and can clarify for me. But okay. there was an episode where... Zach or Cody mm-hmm. was trying to train themselves not to do something and would snap, snap like a, a hair band. tie yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, or a rubber band every time they did uh-huh. it. And I'm, I, I'm going to bet it was the Sweet Life on Deck. Uh, yeah, that I sounds think. right. Yeah. So I, 
I'm pretty sure I need to try to do that now with my filler words because it it really was a, alarming that for a person who public speaks for a job, I didn't like that look on myself. But it's just so it's a habit at this point to fill mm-hmm. in silences with um and and so. Mm-hmm. So I don't fault you. Okay, thank you. I do. Okay. <laughs> I would like to change. Okay. So so for you all, I'm going to try my best to not say um and we'll see how it goes. I'm not going to make any promises, but we're going to see how it goes. Because n- Other especially than that, no notes. Now no that notes. you brought that to their attention, that's going to be the one thing they're going to be looking out for. Okay, don't do that. I already know <laughs> okay. about it. You don't have to tell me. I appreciate Again. Listen, I appreciate you all wanting to see me improve. Mm-hmm. But don't I'm tell good. us about it. No, it'll me it, I got it. I got it. Would Thank you cry you. if someone gave you a bad review? Or like a um, what they thought was constructive criticism, but clearly neither <laughs> one of us can take constructive criticism or we will break. So I think I can take constructive criticism, but I've mm. been told by my boyfriend that mm. I take constructive criticism poorly, but in the opposite way that other people do. Other people will get defensive maybe mm-hmm. and be upset with the person. I just get upset with myself and I'm like, yeah, that one thing that you said, also I do 12 other things wrong and I just (laughs) should never talk again. (laughs) Yeah, completely spiral. So I can, I think I wouldn't get upset with you, but yeah, Mm -hmm. you're right. I would cry. Me too. Absolutely. So, So make sure you structure it. You, you do a sandwich, you know that. So you do a compliment sprinkled Mm -hmm. with a little bit of constructive criticism Finish it off with Mm -mm. a big slice of compliment. No, I want compliment, compliment, compliment. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) If it's not that, I don't want it. That's fair. So, and I won't take it. That's fair. Okay, thank you. you. We just will not accept it. Blocked (laughs) and reported. Mm -hmm. Like shunned, banned, exiled from my mind. Won't talk to you, won't listen to you. Right. Who are you? So all this to say... Please rate us five stars <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> wherever you're listening. This is this is your own wake up call. <laughs> so mm-hmm. please rate us five stars. Why don't we get into our stories for the week? I guess right. Yeah, Why what not? you came here for? What right. you're reviewing us? For. <laughs> right. All those five stars are not for uh, talk about the weather. It is for these stories. I'm going first this week. I think that you are. I think it's quickly becoming evident to me that it's hard to keep track of the order. I do think you are going first this week. All right, cool. Let's get into it. Um, You don't know who I'm talking about this week, do you? I don't. And I realized that earlier this afternoon and I was like, hmm, should I check? Because we have a shared document. And I was like, should I look? And I refrained from from oh, taking good. any sneak peek. So I really don't know anything. This week I'm going to be talking to you about Yone Noguchi. Okay, yep, no bell. No, okay. Nothing for me. Okay, well that's fine because I knew nothing about him either um and it was only through doing this research that I learned anything about him, ever heard of him. Um but before we get into him, let's just go over some sources real quick. 
So I used The Queer Affairs of Yone Noguchi, an interview with historian Amy Suyoshi, and this is from a website called Discover Nikai. And Amy Suyoshi is the Associate Dean of the College of Ethnic Studies at San Francisco State University. And Suyoshi is a trained historian specializing in sexuality, gender, and race. And she's really the one person, like every time I researched um, Yone Noguchi. She's the only one that really came up. She has done so much research on him. She's written a book and journal articles. And like, she's the one that has really brought his, um, like queerness to the scene and really just unearthed all of these letters and all of these documents and everything. Um, so truly most of my, um, sources are by Amy Suyoshi. Um, and so like a lot of credit really does go to her for kind of like spearheading this research. All right, Amy. Thanks. Um, I also used an excerpt from um, Amy's book called Queer Compulsions, Race, Nation, and Sexuality in the Affairs of Yone Noguchi, an article by Amy Suyoshi called Miss Morning Glory, Orientalism and Misogyny in the Queer Writings of Yone Noguchi. And that is from the Amerasia Journal. I also used an outhistory.org article with the publisher's description of the book Queer Compulsions, and I used the Wikipedia pages on Yone Noguchi and Charles Warren Stoddard. I am really, really excited. Great. So, Yone Noguchi is born on December 8, 1875 in the area of what is now known as Tsushima, Japan, a city near Nagoya. He grows up in the Meiji period of Tsushima, which is where we see a shift from this like holding of land in exchange for physical services-based society, which is at risk for colonization by the West, to a modern industrialized nation-state and emergent great power, which is heavily influenced by the Western scientific, technological, philosophical, political, legal, and aesthetic ideas. From a young age, Yone is extremely interested in the English language, and when he's of the age two, he attends Keio University in Tokyo. While at university, he gets to explore the language and is exposed to all sorts of Western writers, philosophers, cultural critics, and more. He expresses interest in the haiku and in Zen, which is a school of Buddhism. And also during this time, he lives in the home of an editor for a Japanese magazine called Nihojin. Hope I pronounced that right. But Yone's eagerness to write, and more specifically write in the English language, and his boredom with his studies causes him to leave Japan before he even graduates from university. On November 19th, 1893, at the ripe age of 18, Yone Noguchi lands in San Francisco, California, ready to fully immerse himself in the English language and American culture. And we've talked about San Francisco within the last few episodes as this epicenter of like great sexual liberation and freedom and queer hubs, but Yone does not find himself in that San Francisco. He finds himself penniless with little opportunity to work. Racism against Asians is rampant. Like he spit on in the streets. He is completely displaced. Um, like he isn't this Dorothy walking out of this like sepia toned life and into Technicolor. It's completely <laughs> the opposite. And so he works as a domestic servant for wealthy white people who Yone can't stand. And he notably writes about them like smelling like rotting cheese and these jobs can't pay for housing or adequate food. 
Still, he's determined to explore writing opportunities in English, and so he finds himself a position at a newspaper run by Japanese exiles associated with the Freedom and People's Rights Movement, which is a Japanese political and social movement for democracy. He eventually leaves this position and his domestic servant jobs to study at a preparatory school for Stanford University, but only after a few months, he returns to journalistic work in San Francisco. It's here when he returns to San Francisco that he befriends and finds refuge in Joaquin Miller, a poet and essayist. And during visits to Joaquin Miller's Oakland home, Yone comes to the conclusion that it's his calling to be a poet. Like, this is what he's meant to do. Around 1897, Miller introduces Yone to members of San Francisco's Bohemian Club, and this is a gentleman's club comprised of all white men, all originally journalists, but it soon extends membership to other artistic trades such as authors, poets, and critics, and membership then expands to those who aren't artistically inclined but rather like the arts for financial gain, and these rich members label themselves as higher status as the wealthy often do. These members are dressed really nicely, they eat well, and they act like businessmen. Poet and member George Sterling, who would go on to publish Yone's first verses in his magazine The Lark, claimed that these wealthy businessmen weren't bohemians, as to be a bohemian you had to, one, have a devotion or addiction to the one or more of the seven arts, and two, be in poverty. So he's basically saying, like, if you really want it, like, you can be in this club, but to be like a true bohemian, to be like a real artist, like, you have to suffer and you have to be in poverty. You're not going to be like this nice businessman that like eats well and does all you know acts like a gentleman like that's just not what we are right like if you're wearing a suit to your private club maybe it's not you know la vivo m you know (laughs) not at all no not at all (laughs) but yone noguchi seems generally welcome to this circle although there seems to be like some uncertainty as to whether he actually ever held a membership when i looked on the Wikipedia page for notable members, he's not even listed. So I'm not sure if he truly was a member or not, but he becomes the inspiration for a lot of the club's artistic members. And Nagochi at this time is feeling the pressures of assimilation, and really now is the time when he feels like he's meeting his people. He wants to be an English language poet so badly, and here are all these artists and semi-revolutionaries right in front of him, accessible to him, and he's really willing to do whatever it takes to fit in, especially after facing so much racism and backlash just by existing in San Francisco. Yone becomes the first Japanese poet to write and publish work in English, and he begins his journey in Imagism, which is a literary movement of poetry that favored precision of imagery and clear, sharp language. And this isn't extensive by any means, but he writes a lot on the topics of themes of love and loss and death and nature. And through the San Francisco Bohemian Club and Joaquin Miller, Yone meets an American writer who is 32 years older than him named Charles Warren Stoddard, who accepts Yone instantly for who he is and showers him with affirmations and friendship. Let's talk real quick about Charles Warren Stoddard. He's born in New York in 1847, but his family emigrates to San Francisco when he's around the age of 11. From a young age, just like Yone, he's infatuated with the art of writing, and he feels called to become a writer. In 1864, somehow Stoddard visits the South Sea and Polynesian Islands, where he writes extensively about the islands and the people there. He goes as far as calling himself an expert on the South Seas, which is like, 
okay, you visit. It's like I wouldn't go to like Spain and be like, I am an expert on the Spaniards. Like I I really know Spain. It's study abroad kids a little bit, you know, when you (laughs) go visit a place. And and that's that's coming from a little bit of a place of jealousy because I didn't study abroad. But it also still is fairly accurate point that it's definitely study abroad kids who come Mm -hmm. home and are like, yeah, I'm basically Italian now. (laughs) Right. Here, Stoddard praises various South Sea Island societies' receptiveness to queer relationships, and he has sexual and romantic relationships with multiple men. And Amy C. Yoshi writes that Stoddard unabashedly logged his attraction for brown boys from the Pacific, and it's from these experiences that he finds himself attracted to Polynesian and Asian men. And, okay, is this a fetishization of Asian men? Maybe. Mm. Probably. Right? Right. That's what strikes me first, but I'm not going to pass judgment on that. We, I don't know enough. But that was certainly my first instinct. Right. And it's because he goes to this island and he's writing. It's like weird. He's writing about these people and he's writing about these islands. And people say that it's like when they read his letters, they're like, it's the most like loving and like full of life. And like it just all of his mm-hmm. words are in admiration of these people on the islands. But at the same time, it kind of ha- feels like is he kind of just like wowed by it because he feels it's like exotic is, right. you know, is he truly admiring yeah, like it? The or, far East and like, or right, right, right. So it's just, I feel like it's probably fetishization and later on you'll see it probably is this. Right. Maybe not with a malicious intention, but definitely right. doesn't seem. <laughs> Either way, he's instantly drawn to Yone, maybe because of his race at first, but their common love for poetry fuels their attraction to one another. So this is really what brings them together, you know, once you get past race. Right. And after their introduction, Charles Warren Stoddard leaves San Francisco and returns to Washington, D.C., where he now lives. But Yone and Charles continue their correspondence. And right from the beginning, their correspondence is passionate. And Yone isn't shy to tell Charles how he feels. But Yone views their relationship as doomed because of their distance, introverted dispositions, and differences in their backgrounds. In one of his letters, Yone writes to his dearest Charles, Thou and I, O Charles, sit alone like two shy stars, east and west. Charles confesses early on how, How long I have waited to hear from you, always from the first knowledge of you, I have wanted to know you, to meet you, to be with you in closest sympathy. From the beginning, they seem just like madly in love with right. each other. Right. So, so they're certainly like, connected, but there's there's definitely some power dynamics happening there that could could potentially be problematic. There's definitely some you know wanting to fit in, probably, and be accepted by this American white culture. Also you know, falling really hard for someone who's older than you, things like that. I'm very interested to know where it goes. Despite being separated, their intimacy grows through letters that they send back and forth to one another. And it's noted that Yone, utterly depressed and constantly missing Japan, is instantly relieved and lifted into a heavenly bliss just upon seeing Charles's handwriting. Oftentimes, on the very same day that he receives a letter from Charles, he quickly writes a response and sends it. Some argue that this deep admiration for Charles was only in response to finally receiving attention and respect, but Yoni's correspondence with Charles differs from his correspondence with other literary colleagues. 
For example, with his editorial assistant, who is arguably the closest person to him at the end of the 19th century, didn't receive such like unique and lavish and intimate letters. When Yone writes to Charles, it is, it's poetry. When he's writing to other right. colleagues, he's writing business, you know? Let's bring back pen pals or letter writing because multiple of our stories have included that and I find it very sweet. Mm-hmm. I've tried. It is so hard to keep up. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. I guess if, if that was your only mode of communication, that's why you keep up with it. But it, it does seem very <laughs> right. sweet. <laughs> right. Amy Suyoshi, in a 2011 publication called the Amerasia Journal, writes, Noguchi lavished kisses on the letters and poured over them repeatedly, basking in Stoddard's love. Yone would write to Stoddard, telling him to have my love and kisses to thee, that Charles was as sweet as honey. He even pleaded with Charles, begging, pray, write me often, oh love, I love you. How I wish you were here, Charles writes to Yone in return. I have so much to say to you. I long to see you, to understand you better and know you more and more. Charles even requests a copy of Noguchi's book of poems and commands that he include a message on the fly leaf so that he might treasure it always. In 1897, during their first year of knowing each other, Yone sends a photo of himself to Charles with the words, to my dearest Charlie, Yone Noguchi. Upon receiving the photo, Charles places it on his desk to always be at his side. When he looks at the photo, he's overcome with the feelings to love and care for Yone and his quote-unquote sweet, sad face, too sensitive mouth, delicate chin, and beautiful hands. After three years of intimate correspondence and heart-wrenching separation, Charles finally invites Yoni to visit him at his home in Washington, D.C. Yoni's reply was, Of course, I like to see you. How I long to see you. How I long to see you. I must go to Washington to enjoy with you. Yone travels to Washington, D.C. and meets Charles at his home where, again, Yone's race seems to be a driving factor for Charles' affection. He recounts his time gallivanting the South Sea Islands and reminisces on his male partners. And over the next year, as Yone becomes more and more in love with Charles, he writes a book titled The American Diary of a Japanese Girl, which he publishes in 1901 under the pseudonym Miss Morning Glory, and the book details Yone's affair with Stoddard, along with his frustrations living in America, but all under the guise of a Japanese-American woman's heterosexual relationship. Oh. And so... This is thought to be as one of the earliest queer Asian American works. So everybody that's reading this in America, because it's an English language book, is reading this from an Asian American woman's point of view. Okay. But realistically, Yone is like having the freedom to write about his love affair with Charles. And he doesn't really have to hide anything because no one's going to know that right. it's a same-sex relationship. Right. No one's going to judge it through that lens, they're just going to read it as another kind of retelling of, of kind of a love affair. That's so interesting. Right. But unfortunately, the book is quite controversial, and this could be an entire podcast in and of itself, but it's infamously laden with misogyny and Orientalism. Mm. And so Amy Suyoshi writes, while Noguchi aimed to critique Orientalism, he produced a work that promoted America's appropriative romance with Japan. He took on a specific female persona to appeal to American readers, and he created this 
frivolous, childlike maiden. Noguchi would reinforce the very ideas about Japan that he hoped to critique, while American interest in Japan took off with the birth of a form of Orientalism that specifically focused on Japan as an aesthetic fetish. The two men were certainly in love. Charles desired to kiss Yone, and the men shared a bed while in D.C. They desired to see each other naked, to caress each other. The affections were absolutely mutual, and their life at Charles's home, which is known as the bungalow, was kind of like a dream. And it's a bit unclear, but it seems like Yone is here between 1900 and at least 1901 or 1902, but he's certainly on the east coast of the U.S. until 1904. At some point, though, it sort of becomes clear that Yone is far more in love with Charles than Charles is with Yone. Before Yone, Charles lived with a young man named Kenneth, but for whatever reason, Kenneth became the one that got away, and Charles seemed to hold on to that. And because of this, it feels like Charles never took Yone quite seriously. He decides that he doesn't want to hold Charlie's hand while he's crying over Kenneth, and so Yone leaves, Amy Siyoshi explains in an interview. She continues, I also think that Yone was deeply conflicted about the public appearance of his relationship with Charlie. He would write all of these affectionate letters to Charlie, but when Yone was writing to women, he would downplay his affections for Charlie. Even if he really wanted to be with Charlie, there was a part of him that couldn't. And so this next part is where Yone's relationships begin to get a little wild. In February 1901, Yone hires Leonie Gilmore, a native New Yorker, as an English teacher and an editor for The American Diary of a Japanese Girl. And then on Christmas 1901, Yone meets a woman by the name of Ethel Arms at Charles's house. By 1903, Yone is secretly married to Gilmore and secretly engaged to Arms. What? And this entire time he's deceiving these two women, he's also still in correspondence with Charles, who, when he finds out about the engagement to arms, implores Yone to break it off. It breaks his heart, and he repeatedly begs Yone not to marry her. Mm. But as the wedding date of Yone Noguchi and Ethel Arms comes barreling towards them, here's another twist. Ethel proclaims her love to a close companion named Alice Wiggins and declares that she finds women more fulfilling <laughs> than men. So, Ethel actually breaks off the engagement herself, but Yone is still married to Leonie Gilmore. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Absolutely. A mess. Did not anticipate any of that happening. No. In the matter of like seven years, he, it, his love life is a shit it's show. It's just, yeah, it's pretty wild. And also still, you know, Charlie's out here playing some games. He's like, you can, mm -hmm. I'm not going to value you, but now that you're in all of these other <laughs> relationships, apparently. Relationships. He's like, I have to have you. That's that's uh -huh. shitty, Charles. Yeah, he turns Charlie. very quickly. Knock yeah, it Charles off. Is, Charlie is kind of shit, yeah. And so, in 1904, Yone Noguchi tries to break off his secret marriage of only a few months with Leonie Gilmore, and he makes his return to Japan. So he finally is like, fuck it, I'm done right. with the U.S., I'm going back to Japan. Getting out of here. And in the boldest of bold moves... When he gets back to Japan, the first thing he does is make marriage arrangements with someone else in Japan, but those are broken off really quickly when he discovers that Leone has given birth to their son in Los Angeles. Oh my <laughs> gosh. You know what? This poor man is just really 
every he's going every through day it. is a different turn of events as shocked as i am uh-huh. i'm sure he was just as shocked to receive that information because uh, oh wildly. originally when you were saying that i was like wow so we've got like a serial monogamist on our hands nothing wrong with that he just likes to be in committed i guess relationships but then you finished with Oh, also, though, he's expecting a baby in a whole nother country. So I have no idea. Right. But he didn't even know. Right. He had no idea. Okay. (laughs) And so, so while all of that mess is happening, between the years of 1904 and 1909, Yone and Charles, again, continue their correspondence between Japan and the United States. And through this communication, Yone's affections are renewed for Charles. Mm. And Yone sends love letters inviting Charles to come live with him in Japan, but Charles actually decides to stay in the U.S. and begins writing with other young Japanese men. Shocking. So again, at this point, I think it's pretty certain that we can confirm it is a bit of fetishization. Yeah, I would. On the part I'm, of Charlie. I'm confident in that assessment. When you thought it couldn't get worse, in 1907, Leone travels to Japan with their son, Izumu, to reunite with Yone and live together as a family. However, this reunion is incredibly short-lived as Yone actually marries another <laughs> woman named Matsu prior to Leone making the extensive and expensive right. trip to Japan. This is the early 1900s. She's not hopping right. a plane and going on, you know, oh, she is no. like traveling across the seas right. with her like young baby right. to go reunite with the man that she thought loved her right. and she loved. And he's married to some other woman and they have a house together yeah, and but, all of you these know, things. To be fair, let's just do you, you might not know the answer to this. Did he? he know that she was coming because i think if you don't if you don't have an invitation maybe don't make the full commitment right. to sail with your baby across the right. to a new country across the, right literally across the world to just like surprise mm-hmm. surprise we're visiting because like right. obviously it's not great that um they did no. that, but at the same time, you have to maybe give some notice. I would say, like, I don't want my, mm-hmm. I don't want anyone just showing up at my apartment without a text. So maybe it, if right. you're going to bring <laughs> a whole family, maybe let them know. It's also the fact that if Yone was not in communication with uh, Leone, he's thinking, okay, she's in America right. and she's living her life. I'm in Japan and I need to move forward and live my life. And so he goes off and marries this right. woman. And so it's not necessarily like he's doing it to get back at anyone or he's doing it out of a malicious mm-hmm. intent. He, he truly might not know. It's just a shitty series yes. of unfortunate <laughs> events that keep happening to this right. man. And so Noguchi is in an incredibly homophobic society, likely causing him to feel pressure to maintain respectability and thus heterosexuality as he enjoyed his newfound status as an internationally acclaimed poet, writes Siyoshi. Charles Warren Stoddard suffers a heart attack in 1909 and dies. Yone and Leone separate officially in 1910. Yone then goes on to become a professor, publish more poetry now in Japanese, and becomes a successful art critic. He reconnects with his estranged son, who actually would go on to become one of the 20th century's most renowned sculptors. Um, And they reconnect before Yone dies, and he dies due to stomach cancer in 1947 at the age of 71. Yone Noguchi published over 30 books in English during his lifetime and a few posthumously. He contributed to numerous periodicals in the United States, Japan, England, and India. 
and he left behind a legacy that remembers him as a pioneering modernist, a cross-cultural, transnational, or cosmopolitan writer, and a founding force of the Imagism literary movement. And that is the story of Yone Noguchi, Japanese and English poet, art critic, and so much more. Wow. Truly so much more. I was... Like a roller coaster of a person. Yeah, I, I mean, first of all, the accomplishments, like set the personal life aside for a moment because that's a lot mm-hmm. of experiences. But the the accomplishments are also groundbreaking. And I just think somehow yeah. that was the least surprising thing of the whole story. But they were know, right. truly amazing. And it is shocking to me. This is not something I've ever, ever heard about. And I'm so glad I did. Because it was, it really yeah. took me and on a journey. Yeah, and he's, I like his writing. There's one poem called The Keepsake that I really recommend to anybody listening. Um, I think in such a short amount of words, he's able to create this like beautiful, heartbreaking piece. But again, this is an introductory podcast to people. So there is so mm-hmm. much more about him. There's um, like a plagiarism scandal that he went through. Um, you know, there's more in detailed um descriptive analysis of his misogynistic views and his career in Japan and his life during the American bombing of Japan. Just like there's a lot more to this man that it's hard to fit in um, to such a short, small story. Um, So I would say if you are interested in Yone Noguchi, definitely go research him some more. Um, Go read Amy Tsuyoshi's book, Queer Compulsions. And what I read from the excerpt, it was really, really well researched. And that was another thing, which is so surprising, because usually when we talk about queer people on here, there's very little like physical proof. Right. We're making an introduction to them based off of introductions and Mm -hmm. like fairly baseline information that can be found mainly on the internet. So it's difficult. This was pretty extensive. It's extensive. And there is a lot of physical proof that he had relationships with Charles and these women. But yeah, there's a lot of physical proof that does connect him to queerness. Mm -hmm. I'm also discovering through this Um, And it's something that's making me really happy to learn about, too, that I think entering into this podcast experience and doing research, I was prepared to find a lot more kind of underground people who felt like they were being pushed to not embrace their sexuality or hide it in some way. And of course, that's all part Mm -hmm. of a lot of these stories. But I, uh, I was surprised to learn about people who were living fairly openly about their sexualities. And I've found that to be pretty cool. And again, I think that's not the dominant narrative that we hear that people who were queer at these times were always hiding it. And that's why we never knew about it. And that's Mm -hmm. why there's so much speculation about it. And of course that is true for some of the stories, but then there's other ones that that's just not the case. And it's not something I ever really recognized. Right. Right. It's so fascinating. Like people have been here for Queer people have been here for centuries. Right. Like, and people have known about it new. and been open about it. It's not like yeah. this thing that was invented and acknowledged 70 right. years ago, you know? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, this is this is a long, a long time mm-hmm. coming sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Jared. I... I think I really needed that story <laughs> this week. Did it was, you? I'm yeah, glad. it was a good like energy booster. Got some giggles out. It was really, it was good. really interesting. Our stories quite serendipitously coincide. 
they're happening fairly at the same times in history, but mine okay. is more of a significant bummer. So, so um, I am a little sorry. When I picked this topic, I didn't know that much about it. And then as I was reading, I was like, ooh, this one is a little, a little bit of a bummer. So that's it's fine. But give it to me. Yeah, we'll have a okay. bit of, of a contrast here. So Okay. I'm gonna make a dumb joke now. Please bear with me, everyone. Please. Okay. This week's story was pretty wild. Cause I'm talking <laughs> about Oscar Wilde. Was it so bad? It's fine. Yeah, you're fired. Uh, yeah. I you um, know what? Yeah. Hey Brielle, <laughs> if you could just um Let's let's switch you out, okay? Just a, just <laughs> a just Thank a rotation, you. get a rotation going until yeah, I can. I need a new co-host. Stop making jokes like that. So, okay, Oscar Wilde. Right. So we're talking about Oscar Wilde. The sources I used for this week were a BBC history page dedicated to Oscar Wilde, lessons from history article found within Medium entitled "The Homosexuality Trial of Oscar Wilde," the website Queer Portraits, "Homosexuality and the Law in England" by Douglas O'Linder, an article for Irish Central by Francis Mulraney entitled "Oscar Wilde Faces Trial for Homosexuality." I took some information from the UK Parliament archives as well as an article for JSTOR by Sarah Prager. Prager, Sorry, Sarah, let me know. Um, entitled, Four Flowering Plants That Have Been Decidedly Queered. So lots of interesting sources today. Some of them might have been, <laughs> might give some things away, but that's okay. Also to begin, I was researching, there was really some really complicated names and it's kind of hard on this show. Jared and I have talked about it. We try to Google things mm -hmm. as much as possible, but if you know how something should be pronounced... Let us know. Please correct us. Also, researching everything says, like, I've I've read this week and think I may have to say the word homosexual far more than makes me comfortable. Just, like, please bear with me through that. If I'm saying it, it's important to the story. It's, like, the language that was used. Um, so that's... Right. We're recognizing that it's not a term that's used right. nowadays. It's an outdated term, but it was used in the context right. so of People of will this use story. it in a way that I'm going to use it as it pertains to the story and including their identities and things like that. So I'm excited though. And part of the reason why I picked this story is because, you know, we're bringing it back to the motherland, Dublin, Ireland in 1854. So this is when Oscar Wilde was born. Oscar Fingal O'Flaherty Wills Wilde. <laughs> Ooh, I yeah. like that name. Yeah, it's the most Irish name, I feel like. I'm obsessed with that. I love that. Yeah, so also Wills Wilde. That's Ugh, so good. Yeah, so he was born the son of a surgeon, which I'm not exactly sure what type of surgery was being <laughs> okay. done in like the 1850s, but his father was a surgeon and his mother was a writer. He went on to study at Trinity College in Dublin, which is the university with like the really famous library. If you've ever seen those pictures of that really pretty library, I don't know that, why that's relevant, but it's like a famous, <laughs> it's like a famous old university and then continued his studies at Magdalen College, which is part of Oxford, like one of their affiliate schools, I guess. So at university, he began to develop a reputation for his decadence and flamboyance. He became heavily involved with the aesthetics movement, which emphasized art for art's sake and this idea of beauty over meaning. This flamboyance and aestheticism was represented by his association to an incorporation of flowers, specifically wearing a green carnation, which became a symbol of queer culture in England, similar to the hanky coat, as we talked about earlier. 
After leaving Oxford, he published several poems and contributed to newspapers and other publications throughout London. He also traveled briefly to the U.S. to promote his poetry, where he reportedly, like his own disclosure, had fairly hot and steamy makeout sesh with Walt Whitman. Ooh. So yeah, after like hooking up with Walt Whitman, he returned to Which like, to wow, London. what a brag. Truly, there was a, a lot of name dropping in this episode. I left some other names out because I felt like I was name dropping <laughs> in a weird way. <laughs> We talked about this in the Frida Kahlo episode a little bit about how learning about this stuff is helping me learn a really great timeline for famous people I knew Mm -hmm. existed and what they did, but not happening at the same time. So this was a really cool story. So he returned to London and decided to kind of lay down some roots there. So he married a woman named Constance Lloyd in 1884, and they had two sons. And then he published some of his most famous works, including the novel The Picture of Dorian Gray in 1890 and plays like An Ideal Husband in 1893 and The Importance of Being Earnest in 1894. So those are some of the things he's most famous for being a writer. Mm -hmm. So from here on out, I'm kind of going to be throwing a lot of dates at you. So try to stick with me because there's some timelines that go back and forth. So I'm going to do my best to clarify. Okay. In 1891, a 37-year-old Oscar met 21-year-old Lord Alfred Douglas, nicknamed Bosie. I don't really know why. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. It's B-O-S-I-E. And what's and his real name? And it keeps autocorrecting to Boise, like Boise, Idaho. <laughs> but yeah, he's, his name is Lord Alfred Douglas, but his nickname is Bosie. So I refer to him kind of for the rest of this. Okay. In 1891, they began having an affair. This relationship lasted for four years from 1891 to 1895 before things started to go pretty off the rails. So there's some similar twists in this story too, I guess. (laughs) Bosey was a member of the British aristocracy and was 16 years younger than Oscar. So while it was not Oscar's only affair with a man, it was the most public and ultimately the most disastrous for him. In 1895, Bosey's father, the Marquis of Queensbury, found out about their relationship. Uh-oh. Yeah. So just to be an asshole, mm-hmm. the Marquis, so Bosey's father, mm-hmm. did the most like passive aggressive 19th century like equivalent subtweet. Bullshit. Okay. Yeah. Just like ridiculous behavior. And left a calling card for Oscar at the private Albemarle Club in London, which read, for Oscar Wilde posing sodomite. He's outing him. Yeah. So he basically outed him at this high society kind of sort of country club Mm -hmm. by leaving a calling card at this point was like a business card type thing. It was like, hey, call me at this number. But he added this passive aggressive homophobia, like, Mm -hmm. and it outed him to everyone at this club. Oh god. So Oscar was rightfully, you know, pretty pissed off that this happened. So when he found out about it, he consulted with Bozy and cuz it was his his dad who did this and also some of his friends about what he should do about this. So his friends advised him to flee to France where homosexuality was legalized during throwback to episode 1, the French Revolution. Oh. Hey, Which I, didn't know, I that. didn't know. Lots of intertwining stories. Absolutely. And at this point in the UK, there was like fully an embracing of 
the social purity movement, which Mm -hmm. was set on, quote, containing male lust in all its many forms from adultery to prostitution to pornography. So part of this mission, including pushing forward the Criminal Amendment Act of 1885 that legally punished, quote, gross indecencies as misdemeanor offenses. So consensual sex between same-sex partners was included as a gross indecency, and any sex act not performed for the purposes of reproduction was considered Mm -hmm. sodomy, regardless of if Mm -hmm. it was between same-sex couples or not. So anything besides, like, male-female penetrative sex for the purpose of reproduction was, like, sodomy and essentially illegal. Right. So that's kind of where we are in time when Mm. Oscar is outed and then goes to seek advice from his friends and lover Bozy. Okay. So it's because it's, it's just like not really looking good for this situation. No. So his friends advise him to kind of flee to France. But Bozy says, throws out this fun little idea mm-hmm. that Oscar sue his father for libel. <laughs> Bozy, Bubba. <laughs> so, you know, even though I did, we talked about this, I did confirmed wake up to watch the royal wedding on my mm-hmm. sister's birthday. Mm hmm. But I don't, that's the extent of my knowledge of like the British monarchy and their aristocracy and stuff like that. So I don't know what the status of, I don't know how much pull like a marquee has, but okay. I will tell you. Well, he has a title. He has a title. Yeah, but that I don't know. That seems pretty high up. Yeah, but also seems like a lot of people can have titles. Like, I don't mm, know. So true. I've also never heard of a marquee. So I don't know like where their ranking system is. I do remember that in the first Princess Diaries movie, there was a scene where they talked about who is higher than who Mm -hmm. and um, their roles and who can sit by who, but Uh I didn't pay that much attention to it, so Um, I don't know. Okay, so Anne Hathaway makes an appearance again in this podcast, but... (laughs) Yet again, Anne Hathaway is present in an episode. (laughs) Okay. So... All I will say is if I was Oscar Wilde's legal counsel, I would just probably advise against going after someone named the Marquis of anything. Mm -hmm. But that's just me. I'm not well-versed in the subject. That sounds great. Sounds like great advice. But what did he do? Uh, He decided that he was not going to go to France. Instead, he would sue Bozy's father, the Marquis of Queensberry, for libel. (laughs) There's just no way, there's no good way of looking at it. It's like, it feels like he's going to fight like a huge monster and he's bringing, I don't like a butter knife. Like it just doesn't, Yeah. I don't know, having a title and going up against a man that's threatening you, like it just doesn't seem good for, for Oscar. If I had right. to say anything, it's that is not going to go well. That's yeah, my guess. That's, that's a fairly good you know, premonition that you're having right now. Thank you. As an empath, I am I'm feeling <laughs> right. that it's not going to go well. Okay, I can okay. understand that. So, you know, like, I don't blame Oscar for wanting to defend himself after being publicly outed, but people are protected under libel laws for untrue statements that are defamatory in nature and can essentially ruin your reputation. So Hmm. were the allegations defamatory? Like, could they Mm -hmm. ruin his reputation? Absolutely, without a doubt. And they did. Were they untrue? Mm, Not not really, like not quite. Oscar was having sex Mm -hmm. with men Mm -hmm. for sure, like confirmed and confirmed himself. So this is where he ran into trouble. You know, he went in 
all guns blazing mm-hmm. and really did not have a very strong case. So mm-hmm. he was he was confident. <laughs> he was really adopting the fake okay. it till you make it mentality. But and I understand why, like I said, I I don't mean to mm-hmm. be joking about the situation, but it definitely was likely it wasn't going to end well for him. Right. So the trial against the marquee mm-hmm. for libel began on April 3rd, 1895 at the Old Bailey, also known as the Central Criminal Court of England and Wales. By April 26th, 1895, Oscar had withdrawn the lawsuit and was now standing trial himself for gross indecency. So within the span of weeks, literally roles completely reversed. And Oscar's now Mm -hmm. facing more serious penalties than the Marquis Mm -hmm. would have been facing if found guilty for libel. So at the original trial against the Marquis for libel, the defense, so the Marquis team, brought in male sex workers who claimed to have had sex with Oscar, basically shattering any case that he had for libel and immediately making him a suspect for these gross indecency and sodomy laws. During his own trial for gross indecency, he was accused of using his novel, The Picture of Dorian Gray, to seduce Bosey with its homoerotic themes. So now, to be fair, I'm pretty sure I was supposed to read The Picture of Dorian Gray in in my sophomore year class, but I didn't read it all the way through, Mm -hmm. and I'm really sorry, Miss Adams, that I lied to you about that. But the parts that I did read must not have been the homoerotic ones because I just didn't pick up on that. And I also don't think it should be used (laughs) as evidence. That's just me. Also, Bozy's poem entitled Two Loves was cited by the prosecution as evidence of Wilde's homosexuality. The poem included many references to flowers, again, being used as an underground code for men who loved other men, as well as subtle references to the two men's relationship, Mm. including the specific line, quote, I am the love that dare not speak its name. This specific line was fixated on strong evidence against Wilde. Roughly a month later, on May 25th, 1895, Oscar Wilde was one of the first people convicted under the Criminal Law Amendment Act of 1885. He was convicted on 25 counts of gross indecency and sentenced to two years of hard labor. He was taken to Pentonville Prison in London, where he was forced to pick oakum, which I looked it up. It's a material used primarily to build ships, big ships, and... When I was looking up pictures of it, it kind of seems like really, really heavy, Mm -hmm. like twine, big rope type stuff, like docking rope almost. That's okay. Okay. I I don't know what the material he's picking was, but it was it was difficult. It was very hard labor. It's like heavy and big. It's right. It's very physical, physically taxing. Right. So he moved prisons at some point to Reading Jail. So this, I said it that way because. It's spelled G-A-O-L. Jail is? Yes, jail. It's pronounced jail, but spelled G-A-O-L. But it's spelled goal? Oh, that's not how you spell goal. <laughs> G-A. Like, like gowl or something like that. So I looked it up because I repeat the phrase a couple times, and I was like, I want to tr- see how this is pronounced. Is this like a Welsh word? Is this an Irish word? What is this word? Mm-hmm. And I looked it up. It was just jail. Just jail. Okay. Just jail okay. spelled a fun way, I guess. 
Ooh, yeah, quirky. Okay. So he moved prisons to Reading Jail, which is also in London, but at this point became incredibly sick with his health quickly deteriorating. He wrote a final letter to Bosey, which was published posthumously entitled De Profundis, which means from the depths or a state of affliction or anguish. Lord Alfred Douglas, aka Bosey, never wrote to Oscar or visited him while in prison. Mm-hmm. Mm-mm. Yeah. Mm-mm-mm. I was really See, pissed. Yeah, I would be too. But at the same time, it's hard because it's like if someone was just basically jailed for being gay and you're on the other end of that, you know, you're the supposed lover. It's like you don't want to go down with that sinking ship sure. at that point. So why would you put yourself in a position to then be in you know public speculation or give right. anybody any sort of evidence in a case like it sucks right. and it's hard that or it's tragic that he couldn't go see oscar if they really were right in love or in a relationship or you know had deep a deep connection with each other but it's like at the same time it's self-preservation and it's like survival right like i was reading this and that was my first instinct was to un- it was like minimizing the harm that he could have faced. But then mm-hmm. as I'm reading things again, and that's still totally a valid point. And I do think that that's part of it. But at the same time, it was his idea to bring this lawsuit to begin with. And he was already mm. already publicly outed in this trial because they brought up his poems and the fact that they were in a relationship to convict Wilde. And I think probably being part of the aristocracy protect, like insulated him mm-hmm. a little bit from facing yeah. repercussions like this. But I think I was just saddened to know that this was the route he chose, probably from the influence right. of Bozy. And he mm-hmm. did in all of my research, and maybe I could be wrong, seemed protected from, again, like he was also brought up in trial and all of these things, but it didn't seem that he faced any repercussions from this. Um, Right, right. So it definitely He could have told Oscar to run to France. Right, exactly. Everyone else was saying, probably a good idea to get out of here, continue your writing career, go be somewhere where it's safer. And Bozy was like, no, sue my father. I think that that's the best course of action right now. And what was he like hoping to get out of it that Oscar would win and that they would be together still? Like, it seems like he where Oscar didn't think through going, you know, through with this trial. Bozy didn't think through what the repercussions would be. It's like he didn't think that there would be a negative outcome. And if he is protected by the aristocracy, it's like he he doesn't have a concept of consequence or repercussions. So he's like, yeah, just do this thing and everything will be fine. Right. That's what I was struggling with. I was like, what would be the motivation for encouraging Mm -hmm. a lawsuit? Because even if there was one, then your father would probably lose money or face consequences. Like what? This whole time. He loses every way. This whole time I've been trying to figure Bozy out. He's a mystery to me. Um, Really, (laughs) truly. I'm going to be thinking about it for some time. Um, So after two years, Oscar was released from prison with basically just a ruined reputation, no money, and no family now because his wife took his children and moved to Switzerland, changed their last name, just, you know, broke off any association. And Bozy was kind of being a dick. (laughs) And Mm. so he had nothing. At this point, he moved to France where he composed his final poem, The Ballad of Reading 
I almost said goal again. It's the ballad of Redding Jail based on an execution he witnessed while imprisoned there. He passed away in Paris in 1900 at age 46. Wow. Yeah. He lived a short a short life for the time. He got he did get really really sick while in prison and just didn't really have mm-hmm. money or any support to care for himself afterwards. So At the time, Wilde did not identify as a homosexual, but stated his relationships with men were due to him being an artist and nonconformist. So Mm -hmm. private consensual acts between adults over age 21, including same-sex sodomy, were decriminalized in England in 1967, in Scotland in 1980, in Northern Ireland in 1982, and in the Republic of Ireland, where Wilde's hometown of Dublin is, in 1993. So as of April 2021, the UK Department of Justice announced that it will pardon those who were convicted of sexual offenses that are no longer illegal in the UK. Though they did not identify specific names, it is likely that Wilde will be included in the some 59,000 pardons issued to deceased men convicted under these laws. Today, Oscar Wilde is regarded as one of the most famous writers and his relationship with Lord Alfred Douglas, also known as Bosey, is not as much of a stain on his reputation, but I do wish that there was more accountability or reconciliation after quite literally ruining this man's career and life. So this week was a little bit more of a bummer, this story. I did find it really fascinating to read about because it seemed widely covered, but I had never heard about it. There was a ton of information, but this is one thing that I never really knew about. And also, I love Ireland, but We do really need to pick up the pace here and get on board with some progressive policies. Just like a smidge faster, please. Which is weird because Ireland was one of the first countries to legalize same-sex marriage. They're so interesting because they're progressive in some things and then on others. So like their abortion laws just very recently changed. And so, but yet they're Mm. the first ones to say Subway bread isn't bread. So like- what are your priorities? I'm taking big stamps. Right. Like, what are your priorities, <laughs> Ireland? So, I think I'm going to use the podcast to just call out just straight up states and countries because I've done it multiple times now. So, like, Florida and Ireland, you're on my list. If you're listening, if you yeah. as a whole are listening, please get it together. I do love you and some of mm-hmm. the things that you offer, but you got you got some things to work on. <laughs> Don't we all? Yeah. Don't we all? So that's that was Oscar Wilde. That was mainly the trial of Oscar Wilde, <laughs> but it was something that was a part of his life that I never really knew about and was kind of saddened to hear. That's so interesting. I I know the name Oscar Wilde. Um, I know he was a, a writer and author, but I didn't know much about him. I didn't know that he went on trial and I didn't know he was jailed. And it's just crazy to think like, had he never been jailed, had he never gone to trial, had he gone to France, like what could have come of him? What right. would he have written? What would he have published? Would he have been more open? Would he have lived a longer life and had different health care and all of these? It's like right. because of that one decision to very foolishly decide to basically represent himself in court when he had no substantial argument and basically was like, yes, I have sex with men, right. but – you know, but like, like and leave me no. alone about it. And it's like, that's a fair point, but that was not the environment that they were living in. And so right. it's totally right. respectable that he was like, just leave me be. I'm not bothering you. <laughs> like, leave me alone. Right. But he was just walking into a situation that was not really going to Wasn't, end well yeah. for him. And so 
Yeah, it is unfortunate. And he was a really prolific writer. So he wrote novels, he wrote poems, he wrote plays, which were all well-regarded and incredibly famous. We read Mm -hmm. a lot of them in school. I'm sure people still do. Right. And so that's the thing. I'm appreciative of that and that it didn't ruin his reputation now, that it's still one of the things we're allowed to engage with in school. But I also wish when we did that, people acknowledged that he faced these things while he was alive. Right. It's the only way to really, you know, keep these conversations going. Right. Like contextualize what you're reading a little bit. It's not just right. It's not just pages. It's not just your textbook. There were real people behind this and they had real experiences that shaped all of those works. Right. And that's why you specifically, Rachel Craig, didn't pick up any homoerotic or homo exactly. you know, tendencies. Exactly. But <laughs> it was the Dorian first Gray. two chapters, really. But I didn't, I just didn't pick up on any. Maybe we should go back and read that together. We should. Book club. Maybe, maybe that will be, eventually we'll do a little podcast book club and we'll start with the picture of Dorian Gray. I love it. Okay, perfect. Let's do that. Perfect. Thanks for tuning in to episode four of Historically Really Good Friends, where we talked about some 19th century queer writers. This is your weekly reminder that acknowledging the queerness of our history makes even misunderstanding libel laws a little bit more fun. Please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen. And to see photos from this week's episode, make sure to check out our Instagram at Historically Really. We hope to see you again next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.